theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Joy. How are you? I'm doing really well. This is an exciting day. I think that we've got a great guest to talk to today. He also taught in middle school for about 10 years. I'm yeah, a lot of middle school teachers were kind of special. If you like middle school, there's something special about you. Amy, I think you know this already, but I started my teaching career in bilingual education that we're going to interview Dr. Sharp today. But Actually, I really didn't know what I was signing up for, I'll be honest. I came into teaching in a very non-traditional path. I transitioned from the science industry because growing up I wanted to be a nurse and then eventually I got degrees in biology, chemistry, and minored in Spanish. And I was a research microscopist for a while. And so it was after a couple of years of homeschooling my children that I took this path of teaching. So I took this mission in the inner city as a bilingual teacher. And I started off with a provisional life. I hadn't gone through the pedagogy yet. I just knew how to teach on my own. And I was already designing curriculum. I had an idea of what things and learning looked like. I had a provisional license, meaning I passed the test. And so they gave me a license to be over children. I couldn't believe it. So I started my career and there were 40 non-English speaking students in my classroom. I really had to get my Spanish under. So I taught eighth grade science in Spanish. That was such an experience for me. My children who are adults now, they remember that experience and how it has impacted our lives even today. But I learned three things from that experience. I think the most important thing that I learned, Amy, is that people are just people. We perceive ideas and notions about people who don't look like us or don't speak and come from different places being different. But I learned people are people regardless of race, creed, or color. I also learned to love my students. I know you love your students, your middle schoolers, and some just can't imagine being with middle schoolers, right? But you just love your students. You come, you grow to love them. But I also learned that we really need to consider culture when it comes to readiness to learn, especially when we're talking about bilingual students. You make a really good point about very unique personality for middle grades teaching. And to add that layer of not necessarily knowing the language or having those other issues entering into a classroom, does the student feel welcome? 
Well, a middle grade student, an eighth grade student often doesn't feel welcome in the class when they do speak the language, when they are very familiar with the culture. I remember being asked all the time, why do you teach eighth grade? And I did wonder that myself when I had my own eighth grade student at home and I was eighth grade 24 seven. But there is that period of wondering who am I and where do I belong? And do I feel welcome in that class? And I always wanted to be there to help them feel welcome. Well, there is that other layer. What if they don't speak the language? Right. How do you create that welcoming environment and provide those instructional supports for students who are coming into this classroom that you're teaching? So I'm really excited about our guest today, Dr. Stephen Sharp. Yes, I am too. So I'm interested in the topic as English as a second language or LL, English language learners, bilingual education. I mean, it's just such an important topic right now because Latinos are a growing population in the U.S. right now. And then we have such a great teacher shortage in ESL and bilingual education. So I'm interested in seeing what Dr. Sharp has to say on the topic. Dr. Sharp joined Governor State University as an assistant professor and coordinator of the Bicultural and Bilingual Education Program in the fall of 2018. He teaches graduate and undergraduate courses for teachers and teacher candidates interested in getting an ESL or bilingual endorsement. And his research centers on instructional support of multilingual users and the use of technology and in instruction. During his 20-year career in the classroom, Dr. Sharp has taught multilingual users at many different levels elementary school, all the way to adults. He spent 10 years, uh, we were talking about middle school. He spent 10 years teaching middle school and elementary school students and preparing them for success in an English language classroom. He has also spent several years training teachers on best practices for using technology in the language classroom. Welcome, Dr. Sharp. Thank you. Good morning, <laughs> How you? Dr. Sharp. How Good are morning. you? I'm okay. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. We're excited to talk to you. Amy and I were just talking. We were talking, I was sharing my experience, started in bilingual program in the inner city of Chicago. When I walked into 48th grade non-English speaking students, I was a science person. I wasn't teaching SL. I was teaching science in Spanish. And right. my students were primarily from Mexico and Guatemala. I taught in this program for about three years, and somehow they made me the team leader of this bilingual program. Lucky <laughs> you. I really learned through immersion because I started my teaching career with a provisional license. Mm -hmm. so I didn't have all that pedagogy behind me. I learned through immersion. I was sharing some of my biggest takeaways from the program and about understanding culture. And from that point on, I have always been a strong advocate about the readiness to learn because I think that there's a lot to say there. So with that in mind, that Latinos are fastest growing population in the U.S. and it continues to increase. We need to take into account all of the barriers that impact when you are transitioning to another country and to another language. I just want to get your take on the readiness to learn. I mean, you're the expert in this. The readiness to learn. Well, that's 
an interesting question because all students obviously come with different backgrounds and different preparation. You've got parents who may both happen to be teachers who have a very good guide for what they think their child should be doing and and they all speak the first language of the population and they go into a classroom and they're probably going to be coming in pretty ready to learn whatever they do or if they go through a a good pre-k program or something like that and then you have people who are coming from outside the country and are kind of going at different extremes you can have various different situations here where the parents may only speak one language and that language is not english and maybe they're not even literate in their first language. So there's a problem already because they're not giving their children the literacy beginnings that they need. They're not reading to them. They're not doing all the pre-literate activities that uh, parents often do with their children just out of nature, showing them books, getting them the feel for books, Mm -hmm. getting them the idea of pictures and what words look like and what's up and down and all those sort of things that you do in the first years of school. A lot of this, we have Head Start programs, we have all sorts of things like that, which help students. And this is actually something that's going on in Illinois right now. We have uh, beginnings of an early childhood program in Illinois through Encora, who, which does all sorts of standards for developing early childhood and Head Start teachers who are not working in the public schools. So if you have um, pre-K and kindergarten programs, you have all these programs. And we have just started developing and actually piloting um, training for teachers to have a bilingual certificate to go along with that so that not only will they be teachers, but the, the teachers will have some sort of qualifications that they need to meet and require so that they can work with the bilingual population, which is, it's early on in their life and they have this exposure. They should be able to pick up English very quickly because they're so young. But uh-huh. even at that age, you have to reinforce the first language if you're gonna have the most success. And so giving them this initial background in their first language, the pre-literacy skills in their first language and working with teachers who can actually communicate with them in that first language is going to do a lot towards getting them ready and it's the same kind of thing that you want to do with any child at that age you want to prepare them with the literacy skills that they need to succeed you bring up some good points that i as a middle school teacher started thinking about whenever i trying to craft lessons and i was trying to understand why students were getting it or students weren't getting the material and i can pinpoint the exact moment that i knew i needed to know more I needed to do more research. I needed to do more learning. I needed to go back to school Mm -hmm. and figure things out. So I can pinpoint some moments that really led me to that. What prompted your beginning in researching technology and education, particularly instructional supports for multilingual users? I knew way back in um, elementary school that I wanted to be a teacher. So it was just a matter of what. My parents were both in the medical field. My uh, brother is actually a pediatrician. Science was always a big thing in our household. I was kind of the uh, black sheep, if you were, because I was more into... Uh, learning and working with languages, I would, and, and that's the thing, I was never very good with languages. I started taking Spanish in elementary school, you know, occasional class here or there. It wasn't anything focused. And I spent the next 12 years not learning Spanish, actually. <laughs> 
I got to 10th grade. I'd had enough of it. I decided I was going to try French. And then I went to a French class and the teacher, for whatever reason, decided that she needed three writing systems or something like that, including the IPA, the International Phonetic mm-hmm. Alphabet, which just confused the heck out of me. And I got out of that class as fast as I could because I didn't really want to deal with all that. And because I had missed a year of Spanish, I went back into it and I was in the Spanish club. So I knew the teacher and he let me jump a year of Spanish and that was probably a mistake. (laughs) And then in college, I tried some more, but I decided I was going to start afresh and I learned Russian. And actually, that's the language that I know better than Spanish in some ways because I focused on it and I learned it as an adult. And having had some experience with learning languages, I was able to pick some things up. Now, and I can't imagine you speaking Russian is easier. Russian being easier? <laughs> Well, okay. Both language, I mean, Spanish is easy because we have a lot of the same words in common. But the thing is, Russian, a lot of the words are based on French, Uh which is a part of English. English is a a combination of two languages, English and French. When the Normans took over, they made the high language French and the low language English. So we have two words for meat. We have pig, which is the English word, and we have pork, which is the French word, which means the meat inside. And so we have smart, which is the, the English word, and we have intelligent, which is the French word, which sounds a lot more highfalutin because it's the the high fancy language. Through all these years of learning and not learning a language, I decided it was important for me to learn how to learn languages so that I could help other people do it. Eventually that transitioned into my first degree was in linguistics. So I was learning about the idea of learning languages. And then I got another degree in Russian language education because that was much more comfortable than Spanish. My placement was very weird because Prince George's County, the county that I was working in, which was its own district, all in one county, which is very weird in Illinois term, didn't have any middle school placements. And when you did foreign language, you did you did secondary foreign language and it, so it's middle school and high school. So they didn't have any middle school placements for Russian. And so I did a middle school where there was a, a guy who knew Russian and was kind of teaching Russian words in his reading class, which was support class for those. But, and then I got, went back and I was going to go, because there wasn't a whole lot of demand for Russian teachers, I was going to go and get a master's in Russian education, which quickly turned into a master's for TESOL because that was much more sensible. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got to here and technology because it's something that I've been good with for all of my life. I started off college in actual programming classes before I got my linguistics degree. So yeah, I like how that you've really gone with your passion and not necessarily with how your family was driving you. you know, I keep trying this very long method on my grandson. So every time I see him, I say, what kind of doctor do you want to be? What mm-hmm. kind of doctor do you want to be? And Harry Wong said your family did that to him. So when he grew older, the only thing he had to think about is what kind of doctor he wanted to be. Being a doctor wasn't a question, but he became an educator, still a doctor, but an educator. So it has not worked so far with my grandson. He's given me a different answer. So he's definitely on your path of following your own dreams. I I have a question for you about when we think about transitioning to a school or transitioning a new job, it can just be really emotionally challenging. I know my transition, the current university, it's been three years for me to really kind of get comfortable. I can imagine the amount of challenges that 
that immigrants might face and they're transitioning their entire lives. All the different diversities that come with that and the linguistic backgrounds and all the obstacles that must come with that. And you run an ELL program, you're into linguistics. Can you talk about the challenges necessary and the necessary programming that P12 would need to meet these challenges? One of my experiences from moving here has to do with culture shock. Yeah. Uh, moving to Chicago was, I had a bit of a culture shock moving here. It was a rather different situation. And so that's kind of a, a small example of what these kids go through. They come to from another country. They come maybe just with the clothes on their back. Maybe they're moving, maybe they're coming by themselves on a train to join parents that now have a new family, a new children, but you know, they're the, the son or the child that got left behind when their mother or their father or both moved to the United States to get started. And so now they're rejoining a family which has a lot more English language support. And so they're the older child and they're supposed to be supportive, but they've also the child that's been left behind. So you've got all sorts of different kinds of issues which could mm -hmm. be going on here. It also depends on what the population of the school is. In Illinois, we're very fortunate because we have a lot of small districts which have kind of a population bubble of a particular language. So you've got a Polish group here, you've got a Spanish group here, you've got an Arabic group here, and sometimes there are a couple groups mixed in together. So you've got a lot of students from the same language background, and so you've got an advantage there. You can use their language to their advantage. You can get teachers who know that language and will support that language and help them develop a second language through the use of their first language, which is how we teach foreign languages in this country. We use English to teach the, the second language. And so if you use the first language to teach the second language, there's so much more that can go on. Plus, they can continue to develop that second language so that those students feel like they're not outcasts, but they're empowered, they have agency, they have a language which actually exists in this country. It is useful to what they're doing. So not only are they uh, learning how to speak with people in the mainstream culture, but they're you know learning about science and math in Arabic, for instance. Okay. And mm -hmm. so they, they see that there are texts which exist within this language and so that they can speak about it and learn about it within their own context. And that helps them maintain their identity within their culture, as well as developing additions to their identity, which are blended with the culture that they're becoming a part of. So I haven't really touched a whole lot on what the schools need to do, but they need to be ready for, I mean, let's face it, in the Chicago area, students are not going to be going into a situation where there aren't any students that are like them. As you get further and further away from big cities, it's going to be mostly Spanish speakers because they're just going everywhere right now. It's because they find connections with whatever it is that they're doing. They become migrant workers. They become support for the culture in that particular, the environment in that particular area. So there might be instances where it's something new, but the schools are going to have to understand the culture of the students that they're dealing with. And that's going to take a little bit of time. They get funding from the federal government for each student that comes in, Title VII funds, which helps uh -huh. them to support these children. But when you only have a handful of students, that's not a lot compared to the kinds of resources that you need to develop. And they will need to figure out what the best kind of program is to support them. They will need to train all of their teachers, not just the teachers that are going to be support teachers, but the teachers that are going to be working with them in the classroom. In Illinois, especially once they get up I think it's 20 students 
yeah. that all speak the same language, once they get up above 20 students, they're going to have to develop a bilingual program, yep. whatever that's going to look like. And I can talk about the different kinds of bilingual programs, probably will at some point later on, but at least the benefit of having that support in their first language will help that child feel at least a little bit empowered towards what they're learning right. in their language use. Hence the reason that I taught science in Spanish. Yeah. I'm just fascinated with the different supports that can be in place and the strategies. Being able to welcome students by having teachers who speak that same language. What might be some unforeseen benefits or consequences in the classroom when providing additional resources and supports for English learners? Might there be broader, wider benefits? Yeah, there will definitely be a lot of wide, wider benefits, depending on what your perspective is. I had troubles trying to think of things which are going to be challenging in this particular situation because, okay, maybe there will be some funneling of funds away from monolingual, Eurocentric forms of education, which is what the mainstream classroom typically looks like right now. We got a lot of education about learning about how, what white men did and where they went and their history and their literature. I mean, I mean, Shakespeare is great, but there are a lot of other people who've written things which are interesting too, especially more recently and from other different cultures like Cesar mm -hmm. Chavez, for example. So I think the fact that you're getting people from other cultures will encourage you to get a more worldview, a bigger worldview. You can bring both materials from different languages. So there's the possibility that not only does the children who need the English support get a second language, but those children who are in the classroom who speak English every day get the opportunity to learn another language and hopefully more about another culture. If you can get it so that you have a dual two-way program where you have students from two different backgrounds or more potentially, but two different backgrounds learning each other's language in the same classroom. So they go part of the time they're spending in, for instance, the Spanish classroom, part of the time they're spending in English. Students from both classrooms speak English and Spanish from that background. They're learning each other's language and each one now can become an expert in the language and become a teacher within the classroom for the students that don't speak that language from the first point. You've got more books and more authors from people of color. You've got more funding for the school. Title VII, I mentioned that before. That's money for each student in the thousands of dollars per year. You've got access to support materials to assist with learning to read and write because of those additional funds. Potentially more technology can come into the building. Because you have more funding, there's a potential for and a need, frankly, for more training of the staff to be able to deal with and work with students in the bilingual level. And, you know, the staffing is going to have to change. You're going to have to bring in people who not only know about second languages, but probably speak second languages as well. And so there'll be more diversity in the classroom as well. Yeah, I, I want to piggyback off of that, maybe in a more controversial way. When I was teaching in a bilingual program, you know, I often wonder, I would really love for my own children to have the same experience, to really learn a second language. There are schools that, was, that didn't exist. You could find where there was a language, a foreign language program, it wasn't consistent enough from year to year to year for it to really have an impact with English speaking students. And so you mentioned Title VII funds for bilingual education. So the controversy here is what about the funds? There's an advantage. I think that we all say that there's an advantage to teach speaking two or three languages. There's definitely an advantage there. So where is that advantage for English speaking students? 
where they get the same benefit without having to go to a special school where they can have that same benefit of learning a second language. Well, there is an age of language learning. The older you get, the harder it becomes. Mm -hmm. And linguists disagree as to whether there's an actual stopping point or it, but there does seem to be kind of a change right around when the child hits puberty, that language learning becomes less acquisition and more learning and more something that you have to actively engage in. That doesn't mean that children learn language as fast. It takes 12 years for them to learn their first language to the point where they can speak it and talk about it and read academic texts at a certain level. I mean, we expect adults to do that in a couple of years when they come to the country. So the idea that children actually learn languages faster is depends on what your perspective of language is and where you're thinking about it. But they definitely have comfort with it. But for the native English speakers, if they go into an elementary school that has a second language population that's large enough, then they can integrate with that population and both groups gain the benefit of learning the language from each other. And then they would be learning probably before they got a chance to learn that language in a normal classroom where the Spanish was offered as an elective or as a once a week class for elementary school. And once they finally got to taking it seriously, they were already in middle school, which is probably a little bit on the late side to learn a language. So they have that benefit of not only learning the language, but learning the academic language. When you take Spanish in school, the most that you get into in the Spanish courses is learning literature. Right. Never talk about science. Very little talk about science. You don't talk about social studies too much, but you talk about literature. So if you're in a bilingual program, like you were saying earlier with your Spanish-speaking bilingual science class you had, they would be taking science, for instance, in Spanish in first grade. Social studies would be in English. Math would be in Spanish. And then they would have language arts in both languages. So they'd be learning to read texts in Spanish and they'd be learning to read texts in English. So it would be both languages would be covered. So they would have a lot of the ability to learn both languages. And if it's done properly in a classroom where they're not, where they are allowed to use their language, the first language to support their second language, they can do a lot of prep work for what they're going to write about, for instance. If they're writing about something in Spanish for the first time, then they can do a lot of the preparation, the planning, the thought processes. Maybe they read something in Spanish, they try to figure out what it means, then they write about what they're going to write about in English for the first time. They plan it out, they rope it out, and then they try to figure out, okay, how am I going to say this in Spanish? It keeps their first language empowered, and it keeps their first language as a support system for learning their second language. And it's something that they can do how they want to and how they choose they want to. This is something that's just called translanguaging, which is a modern trend in the bilingual program right now because it's kind of like code switching, but it's a little bit more. When you're bilingual, it's more than just a sum of two different languages because you don't switch like this immediately between one language and another. There's both languages are flowing in between. So you've got this you know, language flow and you kind of switch back and forth. And if the person that you're speaking with doesn't understand, then you can just switch languages into one. But a lot of time bilinguals will speak comfortably in both languages at the same time. I lived in Texas for five years and they called it Tex-Mex. So we spoke Tex-Mex 
So I can relate to what you're saying. But how common are these programs that you're speaking? I know in places like Florida and California, they may be very popular, but say in the Midwest, is it popular to find these dual language programs? English language learners, native English speakers can also take advantage of them? It's not common. Moving here from Maryland, we have a daughter who was in first grade at the time, and she was in a Spanish immersion program. Now, I had mixed feelings about the program because it was the school was completely in Spanish for all the academic subjects, which is great exposure, but it's kind of like immersion programs for Spanish speakers. When they come to this country, if they're thrown completely into English, then they're going to be pretty well confused. Now, the teachers knew the, the first language of the students for the most part, but they weren't getting the literacy instruction in Spanish. We moved here. We were looking for something similar to that so that our daughter could continue learning Spanish. In Illinois, there is no such thing as an immersion program, but they have a lot of, a few of these dual language programs. I can probably list on one hand the number of areas that, at least at that time, would have been able to provide her with the two-way dual program. We managed ending up in our community, and she is actually the only English speaker in her class which is unfortunate because it kind of makes her feel like the odd person out. She certainly can provide support to those students that she interacts with, the groups that she's in when they're in English class. And she gets a lot of support in Spanish class when she's with her peers working, but she probably feels a little bit odd to be the only English speaker in the class. Yeah, to my point, probably some additional funding so that it works both ways, yes. You know, what's fascinating is my husband works for a German company and we have had the pleasure of hosting and getting to know a lot of his colleagues in Germany who from a young age are taught both their home language and English. And, and the people I've talked to, it's rare that someone doesn't understand English no matter where you go in Germany and perhaps the smallest villages might not have have that dual language happening. But as you and Joy both said, it's rare to find that immersion or that bilingual program. Are we limiting ourselves in world relations by not requiring our students to learn more languages than English or reading in other languages and learning maybe more about other cultures? You hit the nail on the head. I think we are, Amy. What do you think, Steve? I think so too. Now, what you said, Amy, there are not that many people in Germany or any part of the world, especially in business, who don't speak some English. But the problem is they'll be telling jokes about us behind our backs and we won't understand. So if we go out there and we try to negotiate business deals or we try to negotiate peace treaties, everybody will be talking in other languages, trying to find some way to get around the arrogant Americans who don't know anything but English. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have people who learn other languages. We do have lots of different language schools in this country, and we have ways of learning language. We are, okay, in this country, being the idea of learning a language is not uncommon. There are many states that actually require you to have several languages or to have at least one language learned by the time you graduate high school. 
and that's a good thing. But if you wait until high school to learn a language, it's not going to be a very good. And if you only spend a couple of years on it, you're really not going to have all that much background in it. And then you get to decide, okay, do I really want to be good at this language? Okay, then I'm going to go off to Monterey and go to DLI, the Defense Language Institute, and learn languages there. Or go to a special language school for college or something like that. But that's only a small number of people. We get people who come to this country who are already bilingual. We recruit them. But then what's their loyalty to us if we're not the ones who are speaking the same languages as, as them? And I don't want to imply that people who will move to this country are necessarily loyal, but we're not getting the benefit from ourselves and our culture from learning about other cultures and other languages around the world because we really don't understand people. This is just the kind of thing that, that goes on with any kind of reaction if you don't know the people that you're working with. You don't understand their culture and where they come from. So it's, I mean, we're talking about language here, but it's more than just language. Language and culture are very much intertwined. If you don't understand the culture and the history of the country that you're dealing with, you're going to miss some things which are very important to them. It makes me think of a program that I ran. It was a summer program. It was for high school students who had attendance problems throughout the regular school year. We invited them to spend the summer on a college campus, which was very motivational for them. Number one, coming to a different setting, feeling like they were in college, and also the mandate of if you do that, um, you will not go to the next grade level, that motivation comes. So this gave them an opportunity to get some counseling skills, some life skills, and more importantly, their academics. But the majority of students were SL or bilingual students. And so one of the discoveries that you make is that, for example, they have non-English speaking parents and the parents have an appointment. They take that child out of school to go on, you know, to speak some English to go on the appointment with them because education is not that priority right then. When you're dealing with real life situations and transitioning, going to school takes a, a back right? And so you find that these are, for them, very legitimate reasons for why they were not in school. Like, like you said, it's about knowing as much about the culture and what's important, some of the other obstacles that they're facing, and what's priority in their life. I Also, I can remember I would give homework night, like Monday through Thursday, and I didn't give them homework on Friday because I knew, number one, that my students were very family-oriented. I also knew that many of my eighth-grade students had jobs. And I also learned that they were going to church on Wednesdays. Most of them were Catholic, and they were going to church service. So what I had to do was adjust my homework schedule and not get homework on Wednesday. Because again, why struggle with the fact that I'm not going to have a very success rate when I'm doing something that goes against their cultures. You're right, the culture is very important and language and culture goes together, but we definitely need to know that culture, which I think is very important for all teachers. No matter what school you're in, you can anticipate at least 10% of your students having ELL students. And many schools have far more than that. But those that don't have much can anticipate at least 10%. So wouldn't you agree that there's a need for teachers, even as an endorsement, to have an SL endorsement so that they can learn the pedagogy and importance of this? Yeah, I actually think pedagogy aside, you've been talking about culture, I've been talking about culture, the most important thing for them to learn is cultural sensitivity, which is actually one of the favorite classes I have to teach because of the students that I have taking the courses are from diverse cultures. 
the responses that I get from them. And I started a new thing this year where I had them read novels from authors from different cultures about their experiences coming to this country or their experiences living in this country or the experiences of people from this culture as they become bilingual or bicultural. I had a really great reactions to that particular assignment. And a lot of the students really got a lot out of it. Also, we talked a lot about the differences between the cultures and how you have to be a lot more understanding of where a person is coming from. They don't understand that we weren't even first in this country. Uh, we meaning people of Caucasians, let's call us that, weren't first here. We came here and we pushed everybody who was here before us aside. Great story about Cherokee Nation before they had to walk the road of tears. They were the first community that developed a bilingual program of native speakers. They developed their own language writing system as a result of finding out about it. I'm not sure. It was fairly early on. And then through that, they developed a bilingual program so that they could continue to teach Cherokee while they were learning English as well. Mm -hmm. And so that they could become integrated. And then they were forced to leave Georgia and go wherever else they had to go, a long trip to the West, wherever all the other Native Americans were hanging out, not through any choice of their own. But we seem to feel that the European perspective where we come from is the best perspective and that all the advantages that we have had for this are, should continue. And we've gotten that by pushing other people down and by making other people do things for us. And we have to educate ourselves and our teachers that when we interact with other cultures, it's not uh, them coming to us. It's that we have to work together to create a joint culture. And that's the way that we're going to grow and become a more diverse and the society that said that we are when we called ourselves a melting pot 50 or 100 years ago or whenever it was we started using that term. So thinking about your classroom and you said we have to learn, we have to figure out the best pedagogy and the best teaching practices. Who do you look to? What theorists and researchers do you look to to inform your practice? Start off with Vygotsky and various other social cultural theorists. It's Interesting that Vygotsky wrote his work and did his research in the 30s, but we didn't, for whatever reason, studying him here in the West, because he wrote it in Russian, until in the 70s or something like that. And he has recently become a fairly strong force with others. Two other people who have taken this into language learning are Karen Johnson and Lantoff, is a, I forget his first name right now, who have among others, worked with developing language, redeveloping the idea of teaching second language through a social cultural perspective. The thing is language in itself, it's not a subject per se, but it's what we use to learn subject. It's a medium for communicating ideas. And so because of that, it's actually, you know, we have to understand how to communicate through the use of language. We have all sorts of social processes which are part of that. And so if you ignore the social and you ignore the culture, you cannot really deal with language learning in and of itself. Cummins is also another person who has been of great importance to me. He does a lot of research with bilingualism. He came up with the distinction between your basic in a communication BICS, basic in a communication system, cognitive academic language processing. 
which of course developed the idea of academic language, which has taken hold in a lot of instructional areas. Another person who is big on technology and also uses social cultural theory is Warshauer, who works out in Irvine, California. And he does a lot of taking a look at how the tools of technology mediate our instruction. Now we think about the fact that online instruction is different from face-to-face -face instruction. It really is just different because of the media of instruction. A lot of people say that online instruction is better, but that's because it kind of forces you to be a little bit more creative in what you're doing, or at least it gives you a chance to do that. But if you teach online the same way that you teach face-to-face, -face, the instruction isn't going to change. Now, I have actually observed this in my research, the difference between teachers of that ilk and teachers of other ilk, and you know, they had to do it in a one-to-one -one iPad situation, and it was still the same classroom, even though they were doing it on iPads. A final person who I've picked up recently is name of Garcia. She's big on translanguaging, the difference between monoglossic and heteroglossic bilingualism, how to take, there are whole sorts of different kinds of bilingual programs discussed about in the literature, but there's also been a lot of discussion about how to develop these programs. We make kind of artificial constructs. A lot of these are defined by the percentage of what language is used in the particular bilingual program. A lot of it talks about transitional bilingual. You got to start with 10% in English and 90% in the first language, and you want to transition during that uh -huh. time until you're 90% in English and 10% or less in the first language. Well, this construct of percentage, it's very artificial, and you can't really do it in a real situation. And she is going beyond this with the idea of translanguaging, which I've already kind of talked to you a little bit, and taking the language situation and creating a situation where both languages are acceptable, but you kind of focus on one or the other languages at different times during instruction. But I really like what you said to kind of sum up that the communication is what's important. Communication is the goal, and the language are just a tool. So being able to refine our tools and language, even through the use of technology, it's refining our tools that we need to do so that we can improve the communication. There is the need, number one, to have more robust programs in the schools, right? Those of us who are teach with more fidelity. And I do think that we all agree that there needs to be more equality in terms of who gets bilingual services, that there should be bilingual education for all students not just who we consider bilingual students. We all should be bilingual students, right? And that should be a part of our regular curriculum because as Americans, we are the ones that are missing out. So to me, that's the equality, but we definitely want to thank you. I learned a lot and we really, really enjoyed you. Yes, okay. thank you very much. Your insights on language, culture, and the mix of technology has really informed my thinking. And I hope our listeners will take away a lot of great resources to their classrooms as well. You're thank welcome. You. Wow, Steve Sharp had so much to share with us. I'm just, I really feel blown away, really energized to think about culture and think about the influence of culture in our classrooms. What I found really interesting was it's not necessarily about the language piece. Right, it's about the culture, right? It's about the culture. And you mentioned that as well whenever you were teaching eighth grade students in the science classroom. 
the considerations for the culture needed to come first, not just the language. And he really emphasized and highlighted that as well. Yeah, and I like really how it was buttoned up when we talked about communication as a whole, right? Our ability to communicate with each other and the language is simply the tool. So if we can work on perfecting the tool through the bilingual programs, then we could have better communication and thus better race relationships too, right? Exactly. And with other countries as well. Whenever we are monolingual, Mm -hmm. not able to communicate in other languages, we might be limited. We might be limiting ourselves more than other countries are limiting their population. Amy, just to hear you say monolingual is disheartening. We live in the United States, and for those are born and raised in the United States, that we are monolingual. We have that limitation. And this day and age, we really need to transition out of that. We talked about the Latino population in particular. We know that the U.S. is very diverse in many, many, many cultures, and we offer bilingual programs in hundreds of languages. But the Hispanic population in particular is the fastest growing population in the U.S. The diverse population is growing so rapidly, and we keep talking about that. So there's this huge need for bilingual teachers. So whether you want to be strictly an ESL or a bilingual teacher or just picking up an endorsement, I think that every teacher should have an endorsement in ESL to have that skill set, those tools to help make that transition. It's really that readiness to learn and how we embrace each other. That's really, really important. You talked about sensitivity, I think it was. Exactly. And what Steve Sharp said really rang true, especially when you're talking about the endorsements for English language learners, for bilingual endorsements. It is about the culture. It's okay if you don't already speak a second language and you are seeking to understand how to help students in your classroom be more welcome and be a part of the classroom experience. Learning the how to help them is just as important as learning their language. It is very, so this is a great topic. I can't wait to talk to him again, maybe more about technology and languages. That's his other passion, is integrating technology and learning. So I am looking forward to another conversation with him. And of course, I'm looking forward to another conversation with Amy, as always. Yes, indeed. I hope our listeners can check out some of the resources and the references he mentioned in the show. And I'm looking forward to our next round. Absolutely. Bye, Amy. Bye, Joy. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning, Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.